Welcome to the FE Research Podcast, a podcast that aims to showcase the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. And I think I grew up in, in the Netherlands, which is much more of a culture where you're, we are taught to ask for permission before you can do something. And then, of course, you never get scope to experiment. And I always say, mm. I experiment. I'm I'm 100% responsible for what I do. And anyone who wants to to know why I'm doing things, I'm always willing to to talk about that. I need the space to try. Welcome to the FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher Saxon and my partner in crime is It's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm excited because yeah. uh, we're back. <laughs> we're back. We're back for are we calling this season two or are we calling this just 21, 22 or something? I think yeah. we should call it season two, but I don't think when we started, we we figured we'd still be going and into a into a season um as such so uh okay. yeah i think it's time to call it season two and we'll start from this this year after a summer break okay well we're back with an amazing um edition of the podcast with an amazing guest for, um, to kick us off for this academic year um, so he is a professor of educational theory and pedagogy at the university of edinburgh and um, works with a number of other universities as well but i'm going to just invite him to tell us all about himself first and it is professor Gert Biesta. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, what can I say about myself? Um, I'm getting old, so I've done a lot. I currently work partly at the University of Edinburgh, indeed, um, as Professor of Educational Theory and Pedagogy, which already indicates that I have an interest in the theoretical side of education, but also the very practical side of teaching. And long ago, I started out as a teacher in physics in uh, health education, teaching radiographers. So I come from a kind of vocational background, uh, studied education and philosophy, worked in a number of different countries. Um, and another part of my job is in Ireland at Maynooth University in a center for research on public education and pedagogy. And then I also have beautiful visiting roles in uh, Norway to work with colleagues in education and the arts and mental health and at the University of the Arts in Helsinki in Finland. But it has all been online for the last uh, 18 months. So ah. not a lot of travel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully you'll be traveling. Ah, I think you're traveling to Denmark soon, aren't you? Because I think I'm coming to see you in Copenhagen, uh, just outside of Copenhagen. Yes, yeah. that's the plan. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so Maybe traveling soon. Trip. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're going to dive in with a, a few questions uh, sure. and let's yeah see where we get to. Okay, so having done um, some reading of your work to date, um, one of the core things you talk about is the three domains of educational purpose. Mm. Quite often, I think that's the thing that people come across when they start reading your work. Yeah, uh, I just wondered if you give us a bit of a flavour of what what that means. Um, yes, it, um, <clears throat> it's it's partly very simple, but then when you get into it, it can also become very complicated. So I'll, I'll start with the simple version. Um, 
One thing I noted already long ago is that a lot of people in education talk about learning and they say students should learn and we should support their learning and promote their learning. Um, and I always thought that that was not precise enough because when you are in school or in college, you can, turn, you can learn an awful lot, but also all kinds of things that teachers don't want you to learn. Or there are people who go to school and they learn that they actually are considered to be stupid and that can damage them for the rest of their lives. So learning is actually not a very helpful word when we talk about our work as educators. And then I was just thinking, so how, how can we talk about that in a more precise work? What's actually the, the, the work we do with our students? Um, and then I would say one important job is that we help our students to acquire knowledge and skills. Um, and you can say, why do we do that? It, well, in order that they can act in the world. And you can say through that, they become qualified to do things. So you can say uh, an important purpose of education is, is to qualify our students for jobs, but also for life in, in complex multicultural societies. Uh, but that's not the only thing we do. Um, I think through education, we are always also, you can say, presenting the world in particular ways, um, presenting particular things that we value, things that we don't value. So we're also, in a sense, initiating our students into all kinds of traditions and practices. Um, and the, yeah, the, the word for that, or the word I use is socialization, um, which is not just to get social, but to, to become part of, what is it? The, the tradition of plumbers or the, the culture of Western society. So that's an important second job we actually do as educators. Um, and then you can say qualification and socialization are things we can do to students. So we have all kinds of ideas of what they should know. We have all kinds of ideas about the traditions where we think they should look around and find their own place. But what we also shouldn't forget is that students are, are human beings who have the freedom to live their own lives, but also you can say the responsibility to do that. And for me, that's different from just the qualification side, but it's also different from the socialization side. Um, and then I was looking for a good word there, and you can say we can sometimes see our students as, as objects and we give them knowledge or we give them values, but they also have to be subjects of their own life. And that's why I ended up with this horrible word subjectification as the third domain in which we work. So on the one hand, yeah, there are a lot of things we need to do, but we should never forget that we want to encourage our students to become responsible for their own life, their, their working lives, the, the lives they live with others. Um, and when you begin to yeah, look at education in that way, you suddenly have a language that's much more precise than just to say students should learn. Mm. So that's that's roughly the the story. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, okay. So I'm going to um, move on then to uh, thinking about um, 
staff, colleagues, teachers, lecturers, whatever uh, terms you might want to use. Um, because the thing that, that we look at is teachers researching their own practice. Mm-hmm. It, it's not so commonplace in further education, although we're in a kind of little bubble <laughs> where yeah. it does happen. But, it, you know, it, it isn't so commonplace, perhaps more commonplace in the school sector than in further education. So I suppose my, my, my question for you is, is you know, te- teacher research in FE hasn't got a permanent foothold um why do you think that is and do you think it should have a, a permanent foothold you know what might be the benefits of fe teachers more routinely being able to research their own practice um yeah i, I sort of hear two questions so yeah. on the one hand there is this question why is this not so common in fe um and probably I would say there is an awful lot that's not common in FE because FE is, is uh, a bit of a messy sector, you could say. A lot of people say it's a bit of a forgotten sector, and that's true. When you read the newspapers, it's all about schools and it's all about universities. And FE is, is hardly ever mentioned. Uh, but it's, I think in numbers, it's much bigger than the university sector. Um, so it's it's odd that in that way it's it's always absent and it's actually doing um, I think a really important job with um, I wouldn't say sort of challenging students or difficult students but I think with many students who are in the, in the middle of, of complex lives not often the most privileged students um, so I'm a big fan of FE. But uh, yeah, FE is, is complex and is also subjected to a lot of policy interventions all the time. So it makes it a, a difficult sector. Um, so you can say there is so much that needs to be done in FE just to keep it going, that the time to, to slow down and to take time out to look at what are we actually doing? And are we doing that well? Could we do it in different ways? That those questions often, yeah, are not the, the most prominent questions. Um, now, if we call those kind of questions um, doing research in FE and on FE, I think that's really important to do that. Um, you can say that's um, a critical engagement with your own practice. And not just the things you do, but also to look outside and say, what is this environment? What is its history? What is the the politics around it? What are the policies? Uh, How much scope do we have to make our own judgments? How is that limited or constructed? I think those are are really important questions um, to become aware of the the setting where you are. Um, That kind of research, I think, is important and i would say that kind of research is is also not happening that much in schools um so one worry i have when i hear people saying about teachers should research their own teaching or we should make it into a research-based profession is that that comes out of quite narrow ideas about what research is and i see that a lot in schools uh, where teachers say, yeah, we need to do research in order to find out what works. And once we know what works, then we can control our students even more. And that's not the kind of research that I think that that education needs. 
Um, so we need ways of research that really fit the, the complexity and the beauty of the work we do. Mm. And, and that can help to, to make it better. So there are sort of, yeah. Mm. It's interesting you say what works because that's actually the name, isn't it, of some of the um, reports that get put out, particularly by the school sector. And we've been approached in the FE research movement to produce yeah. what works guides as if there is a one size fits all response. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. yeah the, so the what works question <laughs> at the very practical level is a really good question. As a teacher, you constantly ask, well, is this going to work with my students or that? But to make that into a general kind of formula where you mm -hmm. think if you just put a lot of money in some kind of research, then we'll know for, for now until eternity what will work and what won't work. I think that's a really misleading idea, mm -hmm. but a very popular one. Uh, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, well, we're not we're not robots, I think is what I was reading today. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, I, I don't know if this is a, a quote from you or somebody was writing about something you'd said about good teaching requires teachers to think. Okay, which sounds a really simple thing to say, and I'm sure nobody would disagree. But what what would you have you seen in um, as, as you visited schools and colleges? Really good examples of where that institution has. Um, championed or enabled the opportunity for teachers to think? Um, <laughs> I'll give you a bit more context for my question. Yeah, I, okay. I, I mean, I think Alistair and I were talking about it earlier and we were thinking maybe the times where you're explicitly encouraged to think, not just because you would do anyway, might be things like at times of appraisal or where you, your practice has been observed or you might be planning together I don't know planning the curriculum or something but I don't think I don't think the notion of thinking is ever openly talked about <laughs> it's more about doing than thinking yeah. yeah so I just wondered if you'd seen you know good models or good opportunities of where teachers were actively encouraged to think um so I need to think about that, which, uh, <laughs> so in a sense, it, it, it's not obvious. And you can say, yeah, our work as, mm -hmm. as teachers and educators is very practical. So you don't see it immediately. And often you need to start talking to teachers in order to figure out how thoughtful their practice is. Um, and often there also isn't time for that. So on the one hand, I, I would say, I've seen many examples of just, yeah, beautiful and brilliant teaching where I know that what a person is doing there, it comes out of, yeah, a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of experience, a lot of careful observation of what's going on. Um, but there is never sort of a, a subtitle running that explains what's going on. So you, you need to get into a conversation about it. Um, but I also see a lot of teaching, and I'm not sure who to blame for that, where, where I think teachers are, are pushed in doing things in a particular way. Um, when policy is telling them there's only one right way, or we now know what works, so you should do it in that way, almost saying you're not allowed to do it in another way. Uh, and I think that really undermines the, the thoughtfulness of the practice. Um, 
So yeah, it's difficult to put that in, in black and white. Um, I'm always quite optimistic because I, I think there are many things that really go well in, in education every day and are really devoted practitioners. But they are also subjected to all kind of uh, yeah stories and policy demands and sort of misleading promises. And then it's quite difficult to to keep thinking mm. and to to keep imaginative um, about what you're doing. Also, mm. because yeah, there there often isn't a lot of time to to do that. Yeah. Um. Mm, so. I think my last question then is um, we've been reading recently about um, the notion of approved CPD, approved professional learning for teachers. So this idea that maybe the Department for Education or um, I'm not sure who else, but will approve certain types of training for teachers. Um, I just wondered what your view is of that, the idea of an approved only, nationally approved CPD. Um. I think that that's just a silly idea. <laughs> and there's uh, that, yeah. I mean, there, there must be people with good intentions who say, let's make sure that what we offer teachers is, is of good quality. So you don't want to just hand it over to the market and say everything is fine as long as you spend some time. But before you know it, approved, yeah, can become a kind of control where policymakers or the people who, who provide the funding say, yeah, you can have funding, but only if you do this and this. Mm -hmm. And I see that happening too much. Um, I see that there has been a consultation about teacher education in England, for example, yeah. that goes very strongly in that direction by, by saying, let's take teacher education away from universities because the problem with universities is there's a risk that, that new teachers may start thinking about their work and we yeah. don't want that risk. Uh -huh. So that, that's insane. Um, I know in the Netherlands, for example, that um, yeah, there are concerns about the impact of the, the pandemic on, on children in schools. And then the government says, we will give the whole education sector a lot of money, but only for approved interventions. And again, that is such a problematic way to think about education and, and about the, the profession and the professionality. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned when I hear that. And um, I write a lot. I write too much. So I never expect that people read everything I write. But I, I wrote a book two years ago called Obstinate Education. Mm -hmm. um, in which I, and the subtitle is reconnecting school and society. And what I try to do is to say, let's make sure that as profession, we also have the, the courage to speak back for the very sake of education. So not to be obstinate, just to be difficult, but mm -hmm. to say, look, education, that's our concern. We are the specialists and, and policies can sometimes help. But they also have a tendency to to just yeah go with the, the quick and easy solutions that mm. we know won't work but but look quite glamorous. But look glamorous and are measurable. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Perceived to be yeah. measurable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. I'm gonna um hand over to uh, 
Talking about, I was going to say then, talking of obstinate, I'll have to be to now. Oh, you're so kind to me, Joe. Every time, every time. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. That, that was really interesting listening to that. Um, now, we were quite fortunate, um, both both Joe and I um, got to listen to you at the, the IPFREC conference at the start of the summer. Um, and we listened to you talking about um, the artistry of teaching or, or teachers as artists almost. Yeah. And um, it, it flung back a, a memory from quite some time ago, dare I say, from a, the, the start of my PGCE classes, where the conversation was based around the, the fact that you do a, a BA and an MA in education, but very, um, very clearly not a, a BSC or an MSC because teaching isn't a science, um, mm -hmm. but an art. Yeah. Um, and then while I was listening to you then about the, the three domains as well, I was just drawing some parallels between um, the, the artists' um, subject, um, their chosen materials, but also their creative will. Um, and, and that's kind of a very similar balance, isn't it? And, and about responding to the moment. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit of the, the summary of this, this idea that you have of, of teachers as artists as well yourself. Yeah. Um, very nice that you make this connection with, with BA and, and BSC and MA and MS, um, because I think there is indeed in, in the English tradition still a notion of art and artistry that connects back to them. Uh, it doesn't work in other languages, so that's, that's a nice one. Um, what does artistry mean? It's, um, it partly goes back to a very old um, philosophical insight. So I often end up talking a bit about Aristotle. Um, because, well, actually, in, in philosophy, it's very simple. You have people who like Plato, and you have people who like Aristotle. And Plato is the philosopher of, of permanence and eternity and fixedness. And Aristotle is the philosopher of, of change and messiness and development and, and growth. Um, and I'm more sort of an Aristotelian because I think that education is this open process where human beings start to interact, where we as educators put something in front of our students and we have all kinds of hopes, but we have no idea what our students will do with it. And sometimes they pick it up and sometimes not. And we try a bit this and a bit that. Um, and what we ultimately do there is not to make some kind of product where we stay in control. Um, but what we hope is that ultimately students will run with it and, and will do something with it that's, that's meaningful in their own lives. And all those qualities, you can say, are, are qualities of this working in what, what Aristotle calls the domain of the variable, uh, where we can never be 100% sure about what's going to happen, where we can never be totally in control. Um, and you can say there is something creative about that, because as teachers, of course, we come with a lot of experience. And that experience builds up over the years. Um, but still, out of all that experience, there is each time the challenge to make good education out of that in this 
uh, with this group of students at this point in time under these conditions. So there's already artistry there. That the good artists, of course, yeah, they come a lot of experience, they have their techniques, but they have to step into the moment and figure out what's possible in the moment. And I think what, what good artists also understand is that they are not in control of the works of art they make. They will be surprised about what comes out of their hands. So this idea that art is, is a process that starts with thinking. So you have an idea and you just make the idea and that's it. That's not art. Art is to, to get into the, the paint and discover that the paint doesn't want to do what you want to do, but suddenly you find that the paint is, is leading you somewhere. Um, so I think in, in, in all these ways, um, you begin to see actually what, what the beauty and the unpredictability and the complexity of the work of teachers is. Um, and in that sense, to talk about teaching as an art, and also the artistry of teachers and the artistry of teaching, where you say, what actually are the qualities that teachers need? Well, these are not sort of the, the recipes. The recipes only work with perfect students, but we never have this sort of perfect or statistically average student in the room. We have real human beings in front of them. Um, so I think, yeah, education sits in that stream. But of course, that means that it, it partly remains a bit messy and unpredictability. Partly, it also relies a lot on the qualities that teachers bring to that work. Um, and from a perspective of policy or a perspective of control, that, that very quickly can appear as a problem where you say, let's get rid of that, let's sort it out, let's make it clean and predictable. Um, and then you can say, they would say, let's take the art out of education. But I would then say, if you take the art out of education, you also take education out of education. And you end up with a nice production line that maybe gives you high scores or whatever you want to measure, but very unhappy, uneducated students. Yeah, as my uh, my line manager says, uh, the too much focus on on weighing the pig and not thinking about the quality of the feed. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so you, you just started to allude there to, to kind of policy and change and things like that, and, and we quite often ask people um, what maybe they would do. So if if we gave you a a magic wand, um, Gerton, you could could kind of wave that and, and create some change. Um, what do you think it might look like, or, or what would you hope for? Um, maybe it, it comes back to the thinking. Um, I actually do quite a lot of work close to policymakers and, and politicians uh, as a kind of scientific advisor. Um, and quite often the expectation is that the, the, the scientists or researchers will tell the, the politicians what should be done. Um, and I always think the best job we can do there is to, to help politicians to, to think and to think differently about what's going on. Um, so I, 
I always think it's a much bigger step if you can ask a different question about the same situation than just give a different answer to an existing question. So I think, uh, and this is both about what, what we as, as researchers can do in relation to policy, but also what policy can do in relation to the profession. The, the best way to make that better is to create opportunities for thoughtfulness, for thinking, for looking at everything differently. Um, a, a sense of doubt to say, are we doing the right thing? What, what, why do we think that this is the right thing to do? Can we do it differently? Do you think there's maybe a fear because it's very hard to measure thinking? <laughs> yeah, um, there is definitely a fear. And um, of course, it doesn't mean that if we just leave everything to the, the profession that everything will be fine. So it's also important that we have serious conversations about yeah, the quality of what we do. Um, so accountability, responsibility, I think are really important. We should want to be accountable but not in the silly way of performance indicators, because then you have already pre-structured and actually you're not responsible, but you, you, your responsibility sort of disappears by saying, oh, it's just if we meet those statistics, then, then it's fine. That's not responsibility. Um, so there is a serious concern for the quality of what we do, and that needs to be part of our professional conversation as well. But again, if you, out of that fear, say the only solution is to control everything, I think that's really dangerous as well. It's, it's devastatingly dangerous. I mean, this is what the Taliban is, is doing in Afghanistan, saying, we know what the truth is, we know how everyone should think, and yeah, they say, if you don't think like us, we'll just chop off your head. And that's the extreme of a way to, uh, to respond to fear by saying, I want to be in total control. Uh, Very Orwellian, yeah. Yeah, it's not good for, edu for education, but you can also see it's, it's really dangerous for society if we end up there. And you can see how tempting it is because societies tend to move in that direction over over decades. Um, so I'm wondering if you can see my list of questions I have down here, Gert, because uh, the way you're answering the <laughs> the way you're answering things, it leads me perfectly on. So you mentioned about working with the politicians there, and uh, I like to throw in this hypothetical one of, you know, while while you're working with them, you happen to bump into the education secretary in the lift between floors, and you have this wonderful opportunity to say something short but meaningful. What 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 might that be? Uh, well, what might that be? Gosh, um, if you only have these sort of 30 seconds, yeah. And I mean, the problem with politicians is they, I'm not saying that they are dishonest, but they speak in a political way. So they always very carefully weigh what they say because they know that, yeah, what they say has an impact. Um, so I think I would want to ask the, the Secretary of State for Education, what, what is your passion and what is your fear? Um, to figure out actually what, what drives them. And then I would be very curious to hear the answer and maybe that could be the start of a conversation. Um, 
and and partly you want to know what motivates people to be there um and i think that there can be people in those roles who have the, the wrong motivation um i think in england there have been secretaries of state for education who had too much clarity about what they thought education should become uh, that's not good then you don't respect that it's a field where you need to work with people but to ask what their biggest fear is sort of gives you the flip side of that and i think that's also a really interesting question to ask and then i could also ask have you read my books and they probably say oh, who are you <laughs> <laughs> i like that i like that just to start with the question i think is is really good because i suppose that's that's what a good teacher would do isn't it really to, to start by finding out as well yeah. um so that that leads me on to i just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about um your new publication so i wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that um and, and give us an insight into that work um the, the book is called world centered education yeah um what can i say about that it's it's partly i think that the best summary of 35 years of thinking about education so it's it's not a, a big book but there, there is a lot in it um there is already something in the title because one thing i see and you can see it over the history of education is is an ongoing battle between two camps conservatives and the progressives or the the, the, the liberals and the traditionalists um and a lot of that in education is is either projected on people who say education needs to be curriculum centered there is important content or there are important values that we need to get into students and then there are people who say no education should be child centered or student centered because it's ultimately about their development and their flourishing um and what is odd is that there is a bit of truth in both positions, but they keep fighting and, and it, uh, sort of keep swinging back and forth. And one thing I try to do with this, this notion of world-centered education is to say, well, ultimately we need curriculum, we need content, and we have human beings. We need to bring them together, ultimately, so that we can encourage help support the next generation to to step into the world so the world has to be the real orientation point for everything we do not oecd statistics or not romantic views of of just letting everything grow and children be creative um, so that's already a, a big idea in the the title um, but there is a, another idea there because the world is not just anything we want it to be. The world is real. You can say the physical world is real. The social world is real. And that reality puts limitations on what we can do. And you can say an important challenge for education is to help students but maybe we need a bit of help there ourselves as well to come to terms with the, the, the possibilities, but also the limitations that the world puts upon us. Um, and for me, these actually are the, the bigger questions of our time. 
So the whole environmental crisis comes out of an attitude that says, the world is just a thing for us and we can grab everything we want and there are no consequences. Well, we now see that there are consequences, but we cannot just do anything we want just with the natural environment. But you can say the same with the social world. We have to live with the fact that other people are not like us and that we cannot destroy them, that that's not the solution. So we also have to come to terms with the facts that we live in a world of, of plurality. Um, and that's another dimension of this idea of world-centeredness, that we begin to think not just about all the possibilities, and that's why I'm not a big fan of just talking about flourishing and growth and development and creativity, because that, that always takes place in a real environment, and we need to acknowledge that environment as well. Um, and Sometimes that's beautiful, but it can also be pretty frustrating. And to sort of help our students to, to stay with that frustration, not to deny it, not to walk away from it. That's important educational work as well. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I often refer to a, a former president of the United States. Um, I think he was called Trump or something. Um, where you can see, again, what goes wrong if someone has no engagement with reality and just lives in a, in a world of fiction, or he just, yeah. So you, you, you can say um, that is someone who has never really met the fact that there is a, a world out there that's different from how he wants it to be, and that has very dangerous consequences. So that's also then in world-centeredness. Um, and I said, partly our, our work as educators is to, to help and encourage the new generation to, to go to that point. Um, but maybe we as so-called grown-ups um, need to, to meet that reality and be reminded of the limitations ourselves as well. Um, so that's... That's also a lifelong challenge, I think, to, to keep in touch with the world. Yeah, huge lifelong challenge. That one. Yeah. And I, I won't take credit for the, for the full next question because uh, uh, we work this through with Joe, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it all the same. Um, we just wondered, you know, it's that time of the year where people are, are either um, early career teachers or they're starting their teacher training out. Um, I just wondered if you, if you had any kind of uh, messages or, or uh, key thinking for them setting out in their kind of uh, early stages of teaching, really? Um, gosh, yeah. Um, I'd probably say that despite all the, the problems and all the negative stories and, and all the challenges, um, it is a fantastic job. Um, so I would say don't be discouraged about everyone who wants to tell you what the job is and how it should be done and try to make sure that you work together um, with fellow students, with your tutors, with the literature to really get a sense of, of the, the beauty of that job. Um, 
So I, I think I want to encourage people who are at the very start of, of a career in teaching to acknowledge that it's also difficult, but at the same time, that there isn't anything more beautiful than that you can play a role in, in how the next generation of human beings can, can find their way in the world. A, pro a professional baton passer, <laughs> passing on the yeah. baton to the next generation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's a really special place to be in. And if you sort of um, keep that somewhere in the center of everything else you do and everything else you're being asked to do, then that could give you the, the energy to go on when sometimes the times are dark. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of an optimist. And, and I think as educators, we should have a a really fundamental positive belief about the future, even if the, the present is uh, frustrating. But I've always found that uh, there is quite a lot of scope to do things, even if I hear a lot of people or colleagues even complaining that they say, oh, there's so many rules and so many regulations. I have the tendency to just do what I think that is important. And then I'll see when, when the rules or regulations stop me. Um, and I'm finding that you can go much further than people often think. So. I do yeah. like that way of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually an attitude I picked up in, in Britain, this beautiful phrase, um, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And I think I grew up in, in the Netherlands, which is much more a culture where you're, we are taught to ask for permission before you can do something. And then, of course, you never get scope to experiment. And I always say, mm -hmm. I experiment. I'm 100% I'm responsible for what I do. And anyone who wants to, to know why I'm doing things, I'm always willing to, to talk about that. But I need the space to, to try. Can, can I just throw in an, an extra question just before before you leave then? I, I've, I vaguely recollect that you um, were working with a group of trainee teachers um, on a module and there was no assessment. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to, yeah. because I work with, um, I'm, you know, working teacher education and that would be rule breaking <laughs> for us, you know. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and what did you learn from that? Um. Yeah, so that was very fascinating. Um, we found a way to do it um, within all the rules. We suddenly saw an opportunity where we said, oh, maybe if we say that what we're doing falls under that set of regulations and not that one, we can have courses without assessment. And the reason why I wanted to try that is because I think ultimately, we want our students to be able to come to a judgment about the quality of what they do. And they they have to be able to make their own judgment. And you can say as long as we constantly structure assessment around everything, we hardly ever even give students the opportunity to practice what it means to, to come to your own judgment about the quality of what you do. And this goes back to the, the very start um, where you can say, yeah, we need qualification, we need social 
professionalization. But ultimately, we want our students to become subjects in that process. And that means that they shouldn't rely on other people's judgment. They should make their own judgment. So there is a very important educational reason for saying it's not the tutor who should assess, but it's actually students who should assess. Um, so that was behind what we did there. And what I think we all learned from it is that the whole education system is addicted to assessment. Mm. So you could see that the students had sort of withdrawal symptoms. They were saying, wait a minute, is, aren't you gonna tell us whether this is good or not? So you could see them getting very nervous. Um, I think some of my colleagues also then when students asked that question, they said, I will give some feedback. And I was a bit more extreme. So I said, no, I'm not gonna give you any feedback. It's really up to you. So you, you see how actually there is this assumption that someone at the end will speak the final word. Um, and actually that's quite an immature expectation to say that at the end of the day, God will step in or the, the big sorcerer will step in and will sort it all out for us. So it, it was at many levels an interesting experience and it revealed a lot about yeah, our, our common assumptions. But there was a very good educational reason there for saying, yeah, the only way in which you can really educate people is if you also make sure that they are able to, to judge the quality of what they do. And over time, I think students were, they became more relaxed about it. And, and you could see something changing there. Um, and you could say in a sense, they, they suddenly saw that actually they are responsible for, yeah, I, I don't like the phrase, but yeah, they are responsible for their own learning or for their own education. Um, and of course we do that in little steps. But there is the, the risk that if we keep doing the little steps and never at some point take those steps away and say, now it's over to you, then we don't allow our students to experience that, that moment and, and practice with it. So for me, it, um, it's very consistent with how I think about these three uh, purposes uh, of education. Mm -hmm. And it was, in, in a good sense, great fun to do, but, but yeah, serious fun, I would say. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you. Look, we'll draw things to a close. Uh, but thank you so much for your time and your thinking and sharing your wisdom with us today. Yeah, well, <laughs> thanks so much. And I think if I have any wisdom, I, I owe it to the, the work through the years with my own students. So that's that's also lovely about a, a teaching career, I think. Yeah. But, but thanks again for, for having me. Thank, thank you. you very much, Kurt. You have been listening to the FE Research Podcast, a Sheep Hill Studio production. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us again soon.